Today's Tabletop Podcast features Oneida Senior Vice President Paul Gebhardt and Queensberry Hunt designer Martin Hunt. The podcast runs just under an hour long. This was taken live from the NRA showroom. First question. I told you gentlemen uh, both were involved in it. Were, is that true? That you both collaborated on it? It is, really. We got the first brief from Paul. And, uh, well, it was a... <laughs> From time to time, we make contacts with our clients and say, what about doing some more work with us, right? Because we did Botticelli, we did the Nexus range, and it seemed a natural to uh, uh, get going on something else. And uh, so then we had a conversation about it, really, what should you know, fit in, and uh, you know whether they wanted more of our sort of style, which is good, clean modernism. <laughs> If that needs explaining, I don't know what modernism is. And um, uh, we developed some things and presented it. it. The way we present things is very much a conversation with the client, uh, rather than a, a big styling statement that uh, is meant to be take it or leave it. And uh, particularly with somebody like Paul, you know, who we rely on very, very much uh, as an experienced uh, designer. Well, what so, was your, your well, so, Yeah, we entered a phase of development with Martin and Dave, uh, and the gestation period was quite long for this design, this particular design. But we were at a point where we wanted a relationship with, with a design team that would grow, and uh, we had a couple positions or needs in the market that we could define. And one of them was the shape that was kind of on trend or a little bit a little bit ahead of the trend as we as we thought at the time and uh, that might involve color and uh, so we kicked that around and Martin had some ideas that he'd worked on in the past some ideas for where to go in the future so that was kind of the, the foundation of this design and it's nice that we do have color coming out of it at the end of the pipe as well as the unique shapes that go along in the piece which is bit you know, small plates and things like that so when you started the process you knew it, at that point that at some point it would there would be color involved it wasn't the design for this particular dinner. design there was a color com- component from the beginning were there specific colors in mind or just color in general? There weren't specific colors and we were, at the time, Martin was thinking just the center well uh, as color and he had some ideas around that uh, around that kind of decoration yeah. potential. Yeah, very delicate colors and in fact, one of the reasons why the perimeter shape of the two new uh, shape perimeter and one we call classic coupe the perimeter was designed flat so that if necessary we could flood this area with glaze it naturally would flow flat and uh, uh, so that we could put on colors which actually are now on perimeter in an all-over form but originally they were going to be just flooded in Uh, you can't do that with a normal porcelain plate because they're too up and down right. because of the foot rings underneath and the collapsing in the kiln. Slightly, but it's there. And uh, so that determined the coupe shape that we'd agreed would be nice to have a nice, wide and absolutely flat surface rather than a surface that was like that. And that would be prevent the puddling, if you will, of the glaze or the color. Yeah, so we could have a nice color. As it happens, that's that, that particular version is now the next phase. <laughs> the 
because what has superseded it is several other applications of colour which we thought more appropriate for now. Uh, but uh, the, the idea of, a, of a, a flat plate, suddenly the plate gets bigger, the eating surface is total. It's almost like having a tire to eat on. And uh, you only need a small amount of rim and to define the rim neatly. Uh, but it, the interesting thing as we've made the different sizes of dishes is that, you know, very often the next size down will be quite big enough for the presentation of your menu, you know, with, and there's obvious advantages there. Were there specific menu types or food types that you think had in mind as it, as this line was coming together? Well, the coops were getting hot, right? And they were getting hot for, we thought, one reason, that table sizes weren't getting bigger, they were getting smaller. Right. The plating surface was economical, but they were casual. And so we thought with this shape, we defined the center well, we get the same kind of plating surface as a coop, but a little more tailoring, a little, a little finer uh, uh, perception of the shape. So maybe a little more uh, uh, potential for the shape in an upscale uh, format. So it's kind of, I think, the, the initial positioning of this dinner plate. But along with the dinner plate, then we thought we should have some more innovative elements that went with it. And I think the, that led to the small plates pieces that go with this, and also some interesting ovals that are truncated at the ends rather than completing the oval, which Martin made the point that you never really use that end of the of the oval, so why not just lop it off and have a, It'll be open. Have a truncated piece. Yeah. There is one more fundamental, the fundamental that we chose a coupe rather than a rim shape, is that we decided that we got a little bit tired of heavy hotel work. And this was, Paul said the gestation of this has been quite long, so going back two or three years now, when these conversations took place, and that we would make something that was a little bit more fine china, like you might have in your own home. Because Botticelli, which has been wonderful, and Nexus, which we designed, uh, was, you know, certainly four, four and a half, five millimetres thick at the rim. And this time we thought we'd go for a lighter, finer, more delicate look. So, no, that's of course going across most pieces in the collection. But Paul taking on about the smaller pieces, that's something that's evolved later in this gestation period, that it became so blindingly obvious that everybody was going for the first part of the menu when they go into a restaurant saying, I'll have two, of the, two starters, please. I won't have a main course, particularly at lunchtime. And uh, the, what do you get? An eight-inch plate. And we got so sick of this in, good, in, in London, in good restaurants, where we visit from time to time. Uh, and um, that we ought to have things that encompassed and dressed up the main product, which is the food, in the nicest possible way. I went into a wonderful uh, Soho restaurant in London recently, and in, I don't often have a sweet at the end of the meal, but this restaurant is so good. I thought I'd select this, and it was a prune, a single prune, covered with beautiful plain chops and stuffed with some delicious things. So it was a totally 
violently strong, sweet experience. It came on an eight-inch bit of crockery, rolling about in the middle. It looked like an animal had done something on it, right? And so it was a clear case that you need something that, uh, you know, some of these things are so beautiful that they need to be held in an appropriate manner. And a number of the things in this range, with the pedestal bowls, things like this cocktail dish, would be appropriate for my delicious prune. Along with the restaurant scene, of course, buffets and things like that that are single bites. It's uh, you've been to the Vegas scene, you yeah, see yeah. how they're serving yeah. these these small plates. Things are very versatile, used all over the place. It's fresh. It's it wasn't a thought, but do you have specific buffet uh, units that will accept that piece, in, whether it be displays? Well, or? Most of the buffets are, are pretty flexible. I mean, they're flat surfaces. Yep. They take metal pieces, ceramic pieces, okay. glass pieces. So, so no, we don't have specific pieces. This is just going out, obviously. So, we'll look at that going forward. But there might be opportunity to take buffet euro yep. and make some pieces together there. But uh, the great cocktail party plates. And, yeah. Well, you know, if you go to a private view in a big museum. And uh, uh, they come around, you get your glass of champagne, that takes care of one hand, right? Yes. But then you get something in something else, which often is some delicious little bruschettes or whatever, right? One after another, they come at you, and they're in different things. And the most popular at the time we were talking together was the Chinese porcelain spoon. The museums put the little whatever, in a Chinese porcelain spoon. Well, what's wrong with a Chinese porcelain spoon is that the proportion isn't correct. So this was a case of saying, you know, what is the neatest way of doing that that isn't something that's just come off a wholesaler shelf? And uh, so that, this one turned up. <laughs> that, that's the way it goes. I mean, with, there's a you know some kind of strong technical element both from the food point of view and from the manufacturing point of view, uh, as well as from the design point of view, that uh, uh, enters into all of these different objects. Since I come from a background of sales, and I, I find it, as you're describing it, it's a very sensory kind of experience using these species. Can, is, is it more difficult or easier to sell it I mean, because what you're talking about is, is second and what I would think of as second and third level uh, benefits, features, whatever way you want to see that. And I'm wondering if I'm a salesperson for Oneida, wherever in the world, do I have the ability or do I, I mean, to get out there and sell that? Do I even have the time or the opportunity, even if I can do it, do I get the opportunity to have to explain that product as well as you've explained it here? I think. I hope that. If. I mean, we are relying on the chef who knows his food to look hard at things and hopefully that the chef might be part of the selection process for the, the tabletop china because, you know, these are made with meaning. I mean, my business partner, David Queensbury, is pretty much a professional level chef as an amateur. He's always been a great foodie and amateur cook. And you know, these things are evaluated because uh, it's necessary to do things in a different way. 
And I would have thought that once one, if you say to any chef, and maybe this is the exercise for everywhere, to uh, you know just get a small panel of chefs to look at these objects and just say, you know, now write write down every one of your menus that would be appropriate to that object. We've, we've done this actually years and years ago with Rosenthal and Domestic. We had a poster which simply had actually eight-inch plates. And we said to everybody that came in, write down in your household what would you would use one of those plates for, and wrote on it. Right? We started to fill all the plates up. There were a few at the end that were very difficult to fill. You know, it needed a lot of thought. And, but it's a wonderful exercise. But it sounds like to me then, if you're, if you're taking this out into customers, then the target audience for this is the chef rather than a purchasing. Well, I think there's, there's something in it for everybody. But before we leave that point, I think that the audience today, the food service market today, understands plating. I mean, it's, a, it's a business where this plate never comes to the table without food on it. So they see it that way. And I think the, the sales team that we have clearly sells that way. The, the way this will make frame food and make food look. So that's part of their vernacular. I don't think they'll have a problem with that. But the back of the house that you just mentioned, there are things that this has in it for the back of the house people too. So no metal marking because of this surface on the back. This is a uh, an interesting extra step. And I think it's pretty innovative in the business to Put this decal on the back that's sacrificial so it won't pick up stainless steel in the kitchen it won't transfer it to the plate that's on top of it in the stack so there's a lot for for the back of the house as well and i think for us as a company we look for that that wow in the front of the house that you know first you eat with your eyes and do you want the the, uh, the plating to enhance the guest experience you also need to think about the back of the house make sure that it's I mean, the stack height on this is much lower than a stack height with a tr traditional If you foot, take away right? the four or five millimeters of a foot ring, it makes an enormous difference in a stack. So we've got, we've got things for the back of the house operator, and we've got things for the front of the house uh, chef, and the culinarian obviously is going to take this into the test kitchen and figure out how to plate whatever menu items he's got, whether it's a ship or a hotel or a room service operation. But, uh, but I think there's something for everybody here. It's very pleasing shape, and I think pretty, uh, pretty versatile in terms of where it can go. You mentioned that uh, the gestation period to bring this project together was a long one. Is this the beginning of a great partnership now or a continuation? Where do you go from here after Perimeter? Well, well, it's not the first dance that we've had. I, we've done a number of designs We've had together. a number of long gestation periods. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this is the, the next evolution, but where, okay, then, but where do you go after this? Is there something else that's working that we that you don't work? Well, immediately after this, I think we'll continue to work on more color. Okay. So there, there's the, the completion of the center well color, whether we, you know, use that or not. There are additional colors for this range, and we'll see how this works uh, uh, to start with. And then there's the all-over color. So colors, color is happening. You know, color is hot. So culinarians are starting to to think about something other than bright white porcelain to play food on, which is different, which is new in the market. Our mutual friend Maham Anjum, the terracotta lady in London 
did some research work when we were coming to Lancaster, uh, which I've got on my iPad, and Joanne has seen it. It was all off social media, all in America. I guess you've seen it. Hundreds of hundreds of plugs. Every one of them or one of them, or two of them, in all these hundreds of plates, was a white plate. All the rest were ceramic materials and effects with food on and they were all in food service, uh, and they, a lot of them were made by studio potteries, and they were all in America. And it was an eye-opener for us as... So, so we'll continue to develop color here, but I think in terms of new shape uh, projects with Martin and David, uh, Botticelli and Nexus and things like that are core products for us right now. Clearly they have a life cycle, so we'll manage through that with new designs going forward. And you know, design is one of the reasons that Oneida survives. So this is Maham's research offer telephone, right? As I say, they're all ceramics. The history of ceramics, if you go into a museum, is that wide in actually 16 and a half thousand years. And the, what industry does is that wide, right, at the moment. And in white porcelain, this has been that wide. Now we're making it that wide. There's a long way to go, right? And the, we are working with a particularly good South Asian company who is wedded to the idea of doing this same development with us. So the, the world is really our oyster in terms of material qualities and colour and even beyond where we know where we're going. We know what might be happening the next year, right, but by additions, refinements and things. But, you know, if before I finally hang up my modelling tools and my pencil and say, you know, I'll retire to a monastery and say everything's adequate now, that, uh, uh, you know, we want to get this as wide as possible. And food service in many ways leads the way in style and the possibilities of introducing things that are extraordinarily interesting because of the chef. Well, this, um, the original question was about the uh, a specific look to Oneida's wear. Will this become that look, or is design in general the Oneida look? So, so we always look for a design that has elements of culinary trend, elements of lifestyle trend, and elements of design trend kind of interact. So if it's good with the, with the culinary world, so there's a, there's a reason, small plates, right, uh, for it to exist, that's good there. If from a design trend perspective it fits, so color, right, and then from a lifestyle trend, smaller, if they all converge, it probably is, fits the Oneida profile. Because for us, being in that, being in that right place includes all those three elements, culinary, design, and lifestyle. That, that's what fits together. Uh, think about uh, uh, Asian food. I just went to taste of uh, uh, the world of flavor at the CIA. Mm -hmm. so it was all Asian food this time. And clearly, they're plating on a lot of different surfaces. So how will that affect us? It's not here yet. It's coming. 
So we like to be in that spot where when it does arrive, we can have the right design for it. And I think if you look at food, design, and lifestyle as a total, then you get into that into that zone. What, um, the issue of dinnerware in general uh, and what role it plays for the guest in a restaurant or a banqueting facility? Well, the, the, the multiplicity of dining experiences in my hometown of London alone, you know, the different ethnicities, you know, around the corner in Harrow Road, there's now an Afghan restaurant, and it's not like a run-down little kind of a starter unit, you know, where the few guys and a couple of women putting something together. It's a smart, you know, frontage. I haven't been in, but you know, these food is everywhere, and the service of it, obviously, you know, is going to be influential, and you think. That is just, you know, a most wonderful collection of things they served on. Why doesn't that have a wider application? But it can't be like that. It's got to be like this in order to fulfill the three criteria that Paul was outlining. And uh, so, in a way, the, the design thinking is to, to analyse and see what comes to the surface of a, an enormous, enormous range of ideas. So my take on that is, and I think to a great many people that come to a restaurant, this is somewhat invisible. The food that's on the surface is what's visible to them. But if we can enhance that, that's really what we're trying to do. And along with that, I always like to say that if we can justify with tableware why people are spending the disproportionate amount of money on that experience, People don't go out to eat because they're hungry. They go out for an experience. So the tableware, you know, thing is tactile. It, it uh, first to eat with your eyes. So it sets off a certain amount of reactions with your senses that start visually. So I think that that's our role. We enhance the dining experience. And, uh, and dinnerware, in particular, frames the food. So for me, that's, that's it. Enhance the dining experience and justify why they're spending that. What one thing that I think is interesting about these times now is with the advance of social media, everybody's a photographer. Bingo. Uh, that tabletop can, in large part, lead to the selection of where you're going to eat. Because if you go to and whether you like Yelp or you don't like Yelp, it's a fa it's there. Oh yeah. And when people I think go to dine. They're picking one or two or three choices, and out of those one or two or three, they're going to choose one. And if you look at the imagery, because nobody's going to really read all the reviews, you, but you can skip through the pictures very quickly, and how that food looks. Yeah. Well, the good news roll. is the, I, the iPhone is an incredible camera. And everybody's so, a photographer. Well, everybody's a photographer, but I go through those shots myself. Sure. And in restaurants that. Uh, that I haven't been to, just to see what the presentation is like. And some of them, yeah, they're not very good shots, but some of them are terrific shots. They certainly give you an idea of what's going on in the I think, uh, going back to the experience, I think whether it's TripAdvisor or it's Yelp or whatever, you in today's consumer, today's dining guest, has 
a pretty high level uh, of secure, uh, sec they know what their experience is going to be before they even set foot in a restaurant or a hotel, based upon the reviews of other people and pictures and so forth. So you have a high level of expectation about your dining experience before you even get there, even to the Afghan restaurant you've never been to. So. It's very hard, hard to express really what it is in aesthetics that makes people, you know, that speaks to people where they don't even know it's happening. You know, that's the trouble. And uh, you, to the designer's problem is to try to put one's finger on just a few of those elements. You know, if one possibly can, knowing you're not going to get the lot, you know, because we don't know what people are totally comfortable with, but if you watch them, you'll see. And in your own life, you can put your finger on certain things that, uh, you know, give you a warm feeling, and, and you, you could go back and back and back to those, probably you wish to, you know, like in the bistro with a zinc top, well-distressed, scratched table surface with a glass of white wine on it, albeit the eight-inch crockery plate, right? Now that bit, you can do something about, right? So uh, you, you can go back and back and back. Now, in, among the people who are not in the business, like the four of us are, that, uh, uh, you know, what is it that is taking them back and back and back to it? I mean, Paul is suggesting recognitions in people of, you know, what makes them most comfortable or most exciting, you know, to go and spend their money. Uh, I think it's extremely difficult until we get somebody to go out and question probably your job. Because, uh, you know, one, one doesn't really know, all you can say is there are what-if examples sure. that we suggest. Is it this that turns you on? Well, I, I mean, not my, just a comment. I, I think that today's millennial customer that's driving, continues to drive the business, um, is looking to spend money on experiences like dining out and, and on food and beverage far more than they are to acquire goods and, and you know cars and yes they want nice cars they want homes whatever, but it's not in the same as it was a generation ago so they're looking for the experiences and I think we won't talk about price at all but I think people are looking for absolutely looking for better overall experiences and what contributes to that experience dinnerware does obviously but in a, in a sort of a subliminal way and if you can enhance that experience and obviously that's what we're talking about I think you have a happier guest, spends more money, returns more often, on and on. You have a, uh, uh, an audience that's predisposed to, to want a great experience. It is more sense than seen, for sure. But I think that, that the chef is the one that decides this is the right kind of frame for, for whatever particular entree. It might change from, from menu item to menu item. They can, they can select that. Uh, it's interesting to me to listen to chefs talk about shape with regard to menu item because some try to plate exactly the same each time and others try to change their plating, you know, evolve their plating as time goes on. So the industry is is coming from a place of, of very much 
continuity in a menu and going to a place where things are more varied. And I think that means shape and it means the way things are plated. So that, that's a trend that will continue, I'm sure. The Japanese chefs at this particular uh, CIA event were talking about how they, they relate to the shape of each object, which is somewhat unique, and plate to be sympathetic to that. You're so, getting more seasonal menus too. The menus are exactly, changing more yeah. rapidly. So, so it's uh, for, for us in the, in the dinnerware business, shape can can enhance the I think what they're doing as a chef, and that's that's really our intention, and to try to give the guests that pleasingly different but probably not shockingly new uh, shape to look at. Familiar but fresh. Yeah, I, I think what is and certainly will happen with chefs is that having realized that now it isn't just a white plate with some different configurations that they can select from, but actually there looks like a lot of different things, you know, objects and color and material qualities, you know, whether it's a piece of black slate or whatever it is, that, that suddenly, hang on a minute, we can have what we want. You know, there's a, there are other things. There are things maybe beyond that which we've so far seen, because the world of the subject opens up, and when the world opens up, people start to expect it. So some of Mahan's Indian high-end restaurant people in London assume they can have this, and that it can be customised for them, and it isn't. You know, they don't have to go to Steelight or whatever to have it. You know, it'll somehow come to them we'll edit because that out they want other it. Manufacturers, it's, mass a, it. It's a natural thing that they want. You know, something and whatever is in their mind, whether it's you know cut bowls carved out of pumice stone or what, I don't know. But there's a there's a, there, there's the beginnings of an assumption that they can start to demand things that are really very very interesting. The Japanese have been masters of it because they've had their own couple of thousand years sure. to develop it. And chopsticks, you know, that don't leave metal marks on things. Uh, and, so, and, and hand washing. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it, it, what is possible causes a, an explosion of things happening. And, uh, you know, so I'm in a sense feeling we're very reliant on conversations with chefs and how to get those conversations and again kind of comes down to you and you know people like Paul that organize seminars and things to to probe some of these ideas is there a particular is is, is that a is where am I going with Queensbury Hunt Look, the feel, and design. Queensberry Hunt's been designing product for a long time. Very successful. Is there a specific approach to it that you have, or does that approach vary with over time, or is a? Well, we have been quite strictly what is called modernist in the trade design. That means you know, it came out of the sort of Germany in the before the First World War and straight afterwards. And really meant clean, functional, you know, take it, paying attention to technology in the way it's made. And led modernism, at its worst, led to terrible high-rise apartments and also most beautiful high-rise 
the office blocks and all the rest of the design that you know most people are familiar with here, there and everywhere that is still with us. So we're in a tradition of that, but we're also in the, into a tradition of, of being ceramics people and knowing what ceramics can produce by hand, by other means, since the Industrial Revolution, you know, through a very long period of time. Those two things can somehow contradict each other, but uh, at its best, I think we can start to, you know, as I say, widen the field that we're in, the field of modernism and cleanliness and simplicity, into something that's visually really quite rich and extraordinary. So you know, in a sense, it's making modernism a bit more delicious. Where, where do you both see this going? We're seeing color coming back into tabletop. We're seeing coops. Well, don't go away from modernism for a second, because I think he touches on modernism in, in a way that that suggests Bauhaus, right? Less is more from Bauhaus, Bauhaus function. Uh, Mid-century modern, which is a little you know funkier. But it's still very relevant today, certainly from a from an interiors perspective. Uh, and then Danish design or Scandinavian design. Mm -hmm. So those three things. To I me, think the Scandinavian design is the biggest clue yeah. within this idea of modernism because everybody understands and you know knows what you mean by that. If you say modernism, they're not quite sure. Right. If you say madman. Then they really get it. Okay. Because then, then they say, oh yeah, I know that show and I know what goes on there and that's the stuff and I like that. Well, that brings up the relevancy issue too. Exactly. I mean, it's yeah. a lifestyle. Yeah. 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 Um, again, three years, four years, five years, where are we with dinnerware now? We've, we've brought color back in, we're bringing color back in. Is it now texture? Uh, you had said something before, Martin, you're talking about uh, when we were talking actually about mayo of the terracotta, and it's sort of going full circle back around to where pottery and tabletop might have originated. And we might be going through cycles, is that, do you think that's? You wanna go first? Uh, we put the ceramics technology hat on here rather than the modernist design style hat, because what is becoming possible now in manufacturing, and talk about manufacturing as a scale where you can buy a thousand pounds worth of product or a thousand pounds, as opposed to studio pottery and small-scale production. But that too, as we've already said, uh, but the possibilities now through technology of the sort of, funnily enough, to make a studio pottery pot in a manufacturing, a classic modern manufacturing situation, needs levels of control so the materials that you're using, the kiln atmospheres and temperatures that you're firing. A company like Denby, who's probably the past master at stoneware glazes on a mass production level, have the most sophisticated kiln in the world in terms of temperature and atmosphere control. It's, it's a kiln that people from other industries, like the automotive industry, come to say where we're going to heat treat mass production products, we need this control. And they come to study the Denby kiln. And so what is becoming possible for engineering and science, uh, funnily enough, might be the means by which 
one brings in some of these most strange, you know, within a few thousandths of an inch, this boiling of three or four ceramic materials together under control to give a look. And to give a look and a degree of hardness about metal mark or scratch and all of the things that the Japanese haven't had to bother about in their two and a half thousand years because of the chopsticks and this process. So we have these other criteria, everything has to be tested or explained to people, you have it at your own risk, but isn't it beautiful? There's that as well. And most of the studio pottery here is on the level of, you've got to have it at your own risk, but I can see you want it. So, <laughs> you got more? Okay. Oh, this is great. Real, real, uh, my view of this question, this is a great question. Where is it going? Because that's what everybody always asks. Where are we going to be? Right? So, it's nice to take a step back then. Not too long ago, plates were round. Right? There were no squares. Right? It was all round and it was all bright white porcelain. This was the plywood of the industry. There, were, there was some vitrified, high alumina, stuff like that, but the American brown stuff. But, but this was really where the industry lived. And uh, now we're seeing craft pottery, kind of uh, freedom of, of color. Things are, are going to natural materials, whether it's slate or whether it's wood or copper. So I think we're seeing the pendulum swing toward a greater variety of materials, even in an environment where we have to be conscious of low temp and high temp machines in the back of the house and all of the rigors of, of that machinery, even given that environment that we live in, we're seeing wood products uh, come back again. We're seeing products that chefs want to plate food on because they're different. So we became very much the same with round, bright white porcelain. We included then squares and rectangles and ovals and other shapes on that. And now we're starting to include texture and color into that into that world. So that'll continue to diversify until it's just too hard to handle. I think. I think the basis for all this. We talked a little bit about this in Frankfurt, but to me, having been in doing this for a number of years. I think in my lifetime, this is the most exciting point along the road in hospitality tabletop. Because tabletop can be whatever you imagine it to be. Now, that's fine and dandy for some of the fringe restaurants, the Nomas of the world, and, and some of these edge, you know, outer edge people where money's no under. But what I like now to see is that some of those trends are now, you say leaking in, but, but coming into the mainstream and just as you said, Martin, they're being produced in uh, uh, manufacturing-friendly ways. You're getting color, you're getting texture that is um, food service friendly. Uh, products that this you would never have seen a product this beautiful 10 years ago in food service. It would have been too retail looking, too whatever. Exactly. And uh, I mean, to me, it's well, a you make, you make a good point there. Retail trends and food service trends are getting closer and closer together. The chefs ask me all the time, I want a residential feel in my property, right? And then women say, I want a plate like a chef. So the two of them are kind of coming together. Yeah. And you know, it's old men's talk to look back, but remember how short our memory is. In about 1990, 
the head of Mikasa, big American wholesalers, some of the best selectors of fashionable product that really sold in the United States. But Alf Blake, who we worked with at that time, wonderful guy, said when we showed him the first square plates that we were doing with Rosenthal, said in America square plates are ashtrays. How soon did that change? You know, everybody has square plates. And that started off at Rosenthal in 1991. And you know, it, enormous changes are made and it's things once a little thing starts and it, it could be just that this factory is able to do what it can do. Sure. You know, it sounds a strange small thing, a supplier, right? But it, it could be not that any clever designers thought of it or, you know, the industry, the chef thought of it, but the very fact that somebody decided they could make something that hasn't been made before in a continuous process and said, hey, you know, we could do this, but what do we do with it, you know? Well, the good news, too, is that it's not just the dinnerware, it's the cocktails and the, the cutlery. I mean, glassware in particular, the, the range of retro, vintage glassware in the in the craft cocktail business. Great. What's old is, is new and it's cool again. And, uh, and it, it brings up another trend, we didn't talk about this yet, but decoration in general uh, was eschewed by the, by the food service industry in particular for the last 20 years. Now decoration is cool. In Schrager, uh, go to the Nomad Hotel in New York, this is all Baroque ornamentation back in the mainstream of hip, hipster cool. And that, that is a big signal for the industry to think about decoration in a new way. We're working on the Venetian right now. And again, there's a lot of very cool decoration that will be involved in the project. So I think, I think that for food service, along with materials and color and texture, things like that, decoration will be part of that mix. I mean, one of uh, your guests from our conversations, Dave, that you know, we're very keen on factories, people making things. You know, I think really the industry needs to come to realize that factories are not just suppliers, but coming out of these, in a way, the creativity or factories falling upon a process that somebody else, Joanna, says, hey, hang on, we can actually use that process, you know, having spotted it. You know, the, the permutations of these things is the key to, so in a way, the key for the future of that cannot happen, and the things like it, materials qualities, we might call them, materials qualities innovation can't occur without a very healthy manufacturing industry. And the Steelites, people that have their own manufacturing, that's okay, it's under their control. They know they're doing the complete thing. But people that are buying a product from suppliers need to, in a sense, form proper partnerships with suppliers so the best of the partnership can emerge. Because the, the technology is the key to doing all of these things. And it's really, it's the cornerstone of what we do. Right, so that's relevant to this shape, because this is a very hard-fought and, and uh, technical innovation, both the material and the application, and 
getting acceptance to actually do it, uh, which is not to be underestimated in the, in the process. I have to tell you, as somebody who comes out of this business, that is one of the coolest things I've seen in the last two or three years. So you but, understand how this works. Right. Yeah. But, but not much story being told about that. Right, right, right. But, but again, uh, yeah. that's, that's an educational process. But to me, it's one of the, it's one of the, the, uh, the key uh, features of this shape is that it's not going to metal mark. And specifically, not going to metal mark with the color on the surface. Because remember, we thought about this as a colored shape, right. and color's notorious for metal marking. So the tinted glaze that you see on that product is not normal color. It's color with the same attributes as this glaze. So it contains no abrasive uh, elements. And Martin can tell you the technical side of that, but essentially that's color without metal marking. And to me, that's a big story too. So a non-metal marking foot and a glaze that has the same hardness and metal marking resistance as a normal bright white porcelain glaze. Yeah, and also the, we were very taken with the story, the Caribbean line, and the very faint vibration of Botticelli plates in their stacks, right? And the foot ring, the unglazed porcelain foot ring, moving. And how do you stop that? You know, you can't know person on the high seas can feel the vibration, but it's there. And they never put stainless steel in those kitchens on those cruise ships. Yeah, yeah. but it's not that. Yeah, so it's everywhere. It's, it's not just the metal marking, it is that this finish, there's no foot ring to abrade the next surface of the, the other surface. So it's, it's fighting on two fronts. Uh, both of them are crucial to the, in a sense, the particularly those areas, the cruise ship and uh, the plating of the massive... You not, only, you not only get it from the foot ring, you get it from the... It's, it, it, exactly. Across the top of it, it too. It's, it's the disease of one plate being on top of the other. It's, it's got to happen in time. Yes. And if you look at where the foot ring lies in a stack, it doesn't matter in the home, you'll see it in the home, but in the hotel there's a line of scratches. The stainless steel that is next lifted off on that same foot ring deposits in exactly those scratches. They're perfectly positioned for each other. And okay, the dishwasher will remove it 99% of the time. But when I was here in the Hyatt four or five years ago with Dudson's looking at and watching uh, them plating up partly cooked food, four o'clock in the morning. They were, there was one woman at the end of the conveyor where the half-cooked omelets and the half-cooked tomato was going on, right? Going through the plates, throwing them onto the, it was a rubber conveyor. So she was actually looking for not washed up plates with food still on them, but also went through metal on it. Right, and, and also and the older the plate, the reality is in, a, in the back of a house, the dishwasher, the plates come out, they're damp, and that water continues to accelerate the abrasion and any deposits are on there. So, so I think we've got here, we've got something that, yes, indeed, we've got to talk about now. It's out there. It's going to be done. It's ready to be talked about. What haven't we talked about, speaking of talking about, what haven't we talked about today that you would want to include in this? 
whether it be about the partnership between Oneida and Queensbury Hunt, whether it be about the permit of dinnerware, or whether it be about design in general. I think we covered it all. Um, I like the idea that design um, seems to be coming back to the forefront again at Oneida. Um, I think watched Oneida. I have a great love for the brand. I'm a brand person. Uh, I think Oneida is going to lead itself back, probably through design. I always tell people Oneida only exists for two reasons. That they embraced design and brand. Because no one needed a tableware company in upstate New York. Uh, the, the field was full. But they they spent a disproportionate amount of money on branding and design to, to get their way into the business. So those are the, to me, the, the elements that consumers and uh, and chefs and operators are always looking for. Whether you're a guest in a, in a restaurant or a chef looking for a way to change their table times, we're looking for new designs. And we, as I said before, we like to be pleasingly different and not shockingly new. We like to be in that spot of innovation that is really that really matters to the to the operator. It's easy to be really different, but it's difficult to be different in that sweet spot that would really matter to them. So that's kind of where we'd like to, to live. And you can see from talking to us, Dave, that it really matters to us to the point of obsessional madness. <laughs> but that's okay. But I'll tell you, the, the next conversation we'll have will be on branding. And, and I, we have the, the hashtag of Tabletop Matters. I will tell you that brands matter. And I really, uh, brands uh, in the long run, I think, yes, if, if yes, there's, what, people will buy pottery from the local potter in the corner, but ultimately, on a larger scale, brands are what people are affiliating themselves with. When you, when you look at the hierarchy of decisions, the first thing you do is you decide what brand you're gonna buy. You're gonna buy a, Porsche, right? Then you decide what model you're going to buy, and then finally what color you're going to buy. But brand is really the, the first decision, and people shop that way. They partner that way. Everybody in this building is looking for a brand that they identify. When you partner with a design firm, you, do, exactly. you partner with a brand called Queensbury Hunt. Right, yeah. Well, brands, have, brands have trust, they have expectations, and you fulfill on those expectations. And certainly inherent in the Oneida brand is design. It's uh, a core component. But it's also you know, the durability and, and uh, cruise worthiness if you're a cruise line, and hotel, you know, operation if, if you're a hotel, really that ability to work within the, within the known uh, rigors of the industry. Uh, and, it's, and it's not for everybody to play in. If you're a retail player and you try to come and play in the food service business, you're going to be disappointed uh, because it's much more difficult to supply that in that kind of environment. I think the larger design food purchasing commercial team, which includes the customer as well as, it's different, you know, if you go with your wife into a shop saying we need some china, we better go and upgrade our china, that's different, the sort of team that there exists already, but it's a bit of a them, a series of them and us's in the team. You know, want to get different things out of each other. I think the amount of knowledge, if you, Dave, were to put together just as a what if, 
the perfect team of you know somebody from the management of uh, you know a hotel chain, their chefs or another set of chefs, and you know and just say with the designers with Oneida that you know if one considers the larger team, all of which are working together creatively, and each of which can bring out design ideas of their own to throw into the pot, right or the ways of living ideas to throw into the pot. The brainstorming of that potential of that team and the execution, executive ability of that team would be massive. And if, if we could point to a few what-ifs of very successful larger teams that have done this, I think it's a pattern, you know, because whenever I meet experts, you know, Paul must, you know, as long as his arm, you know, these people, you say, I could make a world that was a wonderful world full of these people, that everything we did would be just marvellous. There wouldn't be the thems and the thuses and how can we get it one cent cheaper, or, how, you know, and, you know, we, that we would plan things from the beginning in utopia, but that there are many utopias, I think, among the people, the groups of people that I've met, that I would say I would always rely on. You know, you would always have that person in that team. You know, and this isn't a single company. It's the wider and more intelligent civilization. Well, I think that, um, again, I have to say, that this is the most exciting time in my career in tabletop. And I am thrilled uh, to, to be sort of in a unique perch, having not been a journalist ever, um, just coming out of the, the, the manufacturing side, but, but seeing what I see. And I see companies evolving, some companies devolving, uh, but I see things changing, and I think it's changing a lot faster than um, many within the industry record, because everybody's got their head down. But you would never have seen a product like this five years ago. You wouldn't have seen um, such an awareness of uh, local potters, people putting literally stuff that's made on a wheel that, uh, in, in somebody's garage on a high-end restaurant on a tabletop. And, and you wouldn't have seen wood, as you said, Paul, being brought into the mainstream of serving, slate, metal, everything you can imagine it to be. So I, I, I'm really excited about it, but I, I, I'm also smart enough in, to know this business that there's a practical element. How do you get the distribution of the product out there? How do you get it sold? Because it's fine to, to, to make... Remember in a brainstorming, classically, to enter brainstorming, you must never say anything negative, and the word but can't be used. So you're not allowed to use you know, the pragmatic side of your daily life to say, hang on a minute, we can't do that, yeah. right? So what I was trying to nudge towards in this wider group was much more of what I would say a brainstorming group, you know, that nobody knows there's going to be anything in it for me, the five rules of life, right? It won't necessarily be in it, but it will, and everybody knows it will. The hard part in that, now I'm giving you the, the, the butt back. There you are. Um, <laughs> the hard part in that is actually, um, um, my experience in this business is, is that there's a, I've only run into a handful of people that I would say that would be completely open and altruistic, if you want to, to try and improve 
an overall category. Right. Everybody say, well, if I tell you that, then you'll take my idea. So everybody's territorial, and I get that. But this business, I'll tell you, long term, uh, it's first of all, people are dining out more, and there's reasons to be optimistic about the business. A lot more blue chip investment money that has good and good and bad news to it coming into this business. Uh, I think this business is going to change. It has changed a lot in the last three to five years. It's going to change even more in the next I three to five. I think it's going to change faster. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I listen to chefs from Singapore, from yep. from uh, Bangkok, from uh, Beijing. I mean, the, this whole Asian experience for me blew my mind because this is fine dining on many, many levels. That it's influenced from everything from the colonial era, right, in whatever country that they had within their their borders at the time. Uh, but food is amazing, and they're looking for ways to present it, uh, along with the cocktails, that are new and different. Food is a, and, and again, another subject for another day, but food is such an economic driver. Food, tourism, culinary tourism, whatever you want to call it. Uh, how, how much has the business in Copenhagen been helped by the restaurant scaling up in that in that part sure, of the world, yeah, yeah. for instance? And that's just one thing. So there's a lot of reasons for people to get excited about restaurant business and the hospitality business. And our little part of it, I think, really does play even, a, okay, I guess in my better days I'll say it's subliminal, but I really think it's much more than that. I think it's I think it's highly influential to the overall guest experience. When I take um, a cup, and there's a John O'Pendolfi. If I say that name, do you know who that is? He supplies a tabletop to Eleven Madison, uh, Eleven Madison Park, in Nomad. Not a bad restaurant. And he's got a cup and saucer that, when you pick it up, it has a textured glaze on the outside and a smooth glaze on the inside. So not only do you get the aroma of the coffee, whatever, you get the texture in your hand and you get the texture of the glaze against your lips. I, I, to me, that's crazy that you can be, you know, that, that it just, that's an idea that just sits there. And here's Jono, who's probably all of 32 years old. He's making that stuff as fast as he can. And Have you been in addition yet? Two, two additional. additional. So that just opened up next to 11 Madison. Okay. Uh, and this is Ian Schrager with Bill Marriott. Yes, it's going to be it. So it's, it's, it's open now. Yeah. Check it out. Okay. Uh, Alright, uh, anything else that we want to... Okay, let's shut these off, take a few pictures, and then I'll uh, let you people get on with your way. Great. Thank you for your time.